It's a mat, 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 mat. How many mats are in this title? Matt World is over, but we're still getting started here on Post Show Recaps, answering your feedback about the episode that just aired, uh, all about Matt Jameson, several mats in the title of this episode. An intentional mat sing is what just occurred here, Antonio. I didn't hear any singing. You're a, an accomplished singer, Matt, Josh. Matt, Matt World. Does that count? That was kind <laughs> yeah, of that's the song from Donnie Darko, right? Yeah, that's right. Matt World. Yes, that's ex- Yeah, we're here. We're going to talk Matt. Josh, we got a lot of feedback we got about Matt this episode. Feedback. We got Matt week. feedback. Yes, this is uh, this is a lot, and that's it's great. Like I'm glad that people had a lot of thoughts, but I think that people are ready. Josh, they're ready for the leftovers to turn into the end game. Oh my God, you think so? I'm not sure that I'm ready for the leftovers to turn in the end game. Don't you want this thing to be on for like another five years? I do and I don't. I do and I don't. I think that this season has an interesting level of uh, narrative thrust in that. It seems like we've built that boat had a lot of narrative thrust, huh? It sure did. There was a lot of vigorous thrust. It it really seems like there are two main things in play here, uh, which is Kevinism, real or not. And uh, and that seems to be the the big one. And then end of the world, uh, seven years, big or not. And the fact of the matter is both of those big stories that we've been telling throughout the course of this season root themselves in this character of Matt Jameson. So it's very important, I think, that we spent this episode talking to Matt, talking about Matt, hearing and seeing what his motivations were. And I think it's worthwhile that we're going to unpack that tonight here on the podcast. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about all of your feedback that you guys sent in. If for some reason you don't know how to get your feedback into us, then I have to assume you've just stumbled upon the podcast. I feel like we've been pretty open about the ways in which to get your feedback to us. So hopefully you already know, and this is just repetitive, boring, information but just to set the table you can get your feedback into us a variety of ways antonio leftovers at postshowrecaps.com is our email address we have a feedback form as well postshowrecaps.com slash feedback antonio and i are also on twitter you can tweet your questions our way at ac mazzaro at round howard i'll leave it to you guys to figure out who is who yeah slide into my dms they're open people have been doing that dming me thoughts and comments about this season of the leftovers so Feel free. The door is open. I probably Again, a big risk the, on my part, considering, it, but yeah. In the context of this episode, like I don't feel comfortable <laughs> about slide into my DMs. My door is open. Like I feel very, very cautious about all of our language choices on this podcast. Uh, Say what you will, Josh. I'm going to be Frazier by the end of this night. Oh, uh, man. It's not quite midnight as we are recording this. You have about 41 minutes to continue saying, 40 minutes now exactly, to continue saying that you are Frazier. But we'll have to see what happens at midnight. <laughs> I think we'll get into that. So let's talk about that. Yeah, we're ready to kick this off. We got a lot of great feedback this week. Uh, there's a lot about Matt. There's a lot going on there. Let's just talk about really, we, Josh. In in a, in the couple of days since we watched this episode, I did rewatch the episode. I ended up with not that I didn't like the episode to begin with. I ended up with a much greater appreciation for this episode, specifically Christopher Eccleston and what was going on with the performance and everything that Matt dealt with in this episode. Much greater appreciation by the end of this episode. But me personally, taking user feedback aside, I would like to know from you, Josh, do you think, because we know there's going to be a time jump in the course of this season, at least we assume there is, with well, Sarah yeah, Durst. Yeah, the Sarah Durst thing. Right. 
do you think we're going to see a dead mat by the end of this season? Is that yeah. is that it? You're, yeah. you're, that's a yes. We talked about it a little bit on Sunday, but I wanted to make sure we got that out there. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I did talk about this on our Sunday recap show of like, gun to your head. You're right and you live. You're wrong and you die. And it's a binary choice. Does Matt make it through the end of the season or does Matt die? I think we're on the trajectory of Matt meeting his maker. You know, he met his maker in this episode, so to speak. And you and I, I think, disagree a little bit, or maybe we don't anymore. Um, But at least initially we disagreed. I still hold to my position from Sunday night that I feel like Matt has kind of lost touch with this stuff a little bit. I feel like he he went through his experience with David Burton, and I think maybe he is reevaluating. I think that he is feeling his mortality a little bit more. Uh, he meets his maker in a manner, speaking through talking to David Burton. But now I feel like the end game for Matt is for him to find his peace before he truly meets his maker in the biblical sense, in the sense of uh, this guy will not be alive for much longer. My feeling is that we are going to see, if not a Matt death scene, then we could catch up with Sarah Durst at some point in the future, and Matt is not alive in that future anymore. What do you think? Yeah. Are you still feeling that? No, I, yeah, I think Matt is Matt is going to, even if it's off screen, he's going to die. I We're in a little bit of disagreement maybe about the advanced nature of his illness and whether or not what we see from Matt, whether it's the sweating at night when Kevin Sr. calls him, whether it's the bloody noses or the throwing up over the side of the boat, like how much of that was triggered by the boat, how much of it is triggered by the travel and the stress or the medicine, and how much of that is symptoms of him in his imminent departure or demise. I don't know about that. But where we really did, where we weren't weren't sure, and we got a ton of feedback about this, was was this the end for Matt in terms of his belief system? Scott Duffman said, depending on your take on the end of the episode, it would appear as if Matt has given up on his mission to bring Kevin back to Miracle. Do you think this will also be the end of Matt's obsession with Kevin? And if so, who's going to rewrite the book of Kevin? Or are we in a different place? So my take on this and I don't want to. I don't want to ask the question and answer it myself. But my take on this changed when I watched the episode the second time. What's your take on this, Josh? When we leave this episode at the end of the episode, right before the end, before the mauling, Matt says he has no pressing business. Yeah. in Melbourne. Isn't that telling? I mean, he like contrast the Matt Jameson from the end of this episode to the Matt Jameson at the beginning of this episode, who comes in with his chest puffed out with, uh, you know, with a casserole, right? Like, you know, he's coming to... <laughs> I have a casserole. To Captain Aceveda's house, Pilot yes. Aceveda, yes. and saying to this man, I need you to fly me to Melbourne. We're going to Australia. Uh, and you know, this Laurie is, is not coming. <laughs> and this is in the wake of a nuclear bomb going off in this world and grounding flights, at least in this area of the world, if not yeah, all across the Yeah, that's the last the place world. you want to be going, right. You know, and it's a rescue operation. You know, he even has the – he leaves a voicemail for Kevin. I'm coming to bring you home. And there is just this – I don't know. There's this swagger to Matt of, like, this is the path. This is part of the plan. Nothing's going to be easy. We're so close to the seven-year anniversary, so of course there are hurdles. I shall clear them, and I will bring Kevin home. Contrast that guy, that that guy who, I don't want to say arrogant or cocky, but self-assured, you know, really, really fully believing in himself and the mission, and how rapidly that deteriorated, uh, how quickly that fell apart in the face of meeting a guy who's just going around a boat 
claiming to be God, passing out controversial note cards that explain who he is. I'm a big uh, fan of controversial note cards. You know, who isn't? But, you know, like this is like this exasperates him so fully. Uh, of course, there's the undercurrent of his cancer having returned that has to be reverberating underneath everything that Matt is doing. Matt, in his mind, must be like, all right, so my destiny is to die, but not before, like, spreading this new gospel. Like, that's probably got to be what he's thinking to some extent. Uh, or maybe it's like, once I do this, I'll have a miraculous recovery or something like that. But either way, the worst case scenario would be dying for a greater good, a greater cause. Contrast all of that with what happens on the boat the conversation with David Burton, the end result of that conversation, being told that you never did anything for this higher purpose. You did it all for you. You did it all selfishly because you thought I was watching, because you thought I was judging. I wasn't. I'm not. And he's desperate by the end of that conversation. And it ends essentially with like the Mr. Miyagi moment where he just goes honk, you know, like where he just grabs him by the nose, essentially. Uh, and it's just so anticlimactic for him. And he seems to me, I don't know if I want to say broken, but definitely changed. Um, I think reflecting more on his mortality and less about a mission, less about a grand purpose and more about maybe I'm not being watched. Maybe I'm not being judged. Maybe I'm not part of this higher power. Maybe this story that I've been authoring really is just something that I've been doing for me. And maybe I really got to think about that for a little while. He tells the guy, he tells the captain, when the captain asks him, we'd love for you to come down to the station. Do you have any pressing business? And he says really, really, really clearly, no. And maybe the moment with David Burton getting eaten by the lion changes things. You know, maybe that is. And I know that we yes. had some feedback of, you know, the lion representing a true, you know, divine figure destroying the imposter. And maybe you can read that. Certainly you definitely can read it of Matt turning around and being like, that's the guy I told you about being like a rejiggering of the faith. Yes. But the tone of it, you know, the look on Matt's face, there's no satisfaction. To me, there is no shift away from the man he was 30 seconds before David Burton got eaten by a lion. So I don't know. I don't know that he's in on this anymore. I don't know where he's at. I don't know where his head's at. I don't know what he's thinking, but I'm thinking that he's out on this. It's fascinating because I was pretty much on board with you in that I didn't know. I felt a lot more strongly the second time I watched the episode in that I feel like he does make a 180 or he does do a 360 in this case. In that, I do think he comes into the episode feeling this sense of purpose, doing all the things that you said. And that sense of purpose does get sidetracked in many ways because of Laurie being there, because of the people on the boat, because Matt tends to lose sight a lot of the time. I mean, what part of a sense of a Christian purpose is Matt slandering the people who have departed in season one? What part of that is that? And yet Matt has always been dogged in his pursuit of all of these of all of these things, whether or not they're quote unquote morally up right. Dogs, man, I don't understand it. It's the dog apocalypse, Josh. It makes its way into our language. That's how they get you. But what I would say ultimately is that by the end of this episode, I actually feel like Matt has changed and Matt has come back to where he needs to be. Because let me let me let me bring up uh, another scene in the episode. You mention all uh, all these moments when he's talking to the captain, and that's on point. But there is a point, there is a scene where Matt goes to John and Matt says, 
where is your wrath, John? Like, you used to burn people's houses down. Right. Like, where did this go? And he says in that mo- that point, basically, as a man soweth, so shall he reapeth. And he is upset that David Burton is falsely representing himself as God and as the Savior, and he should be punished for this sort of thing. Then he does have that big confrontation with David Burton. No question about that. And in that confrontation... Eccleson is so, so, so good because he conveys, even in moments of high hilarity, like when he says, you're denying paternity? I like love that. even Yes, yeah, so funny. It's like one of my right? favorite lines of the whole series, I think. Yes, so great. The delivery like that exchange is, just is so great because like, he is all the way in on that, right? But in that moment, his eye acting, which is one of my favorite things to bring up on these podcasts, I know, the acting that he does... The, the way it's shot, it's shot in extreme close-up. His eyes are darting around everywhere as David Burton is bringing these things up. As he's bringing up the points that you just mentioned. You only did this for you. You did this for all these reasons. And the point of the thing I would say is, I think David Burton's hitting pretty close to home there. I think that David Burton is scratching the surface of something that Matt feels like only a person who knows his inner monologue would know. And granted, that's the sort of thing David Burton could be grasping at if he didn't even know. That's the kind of thing you could say and make up and be right about. But it is the sort of thing that really resonates with Matt. And Eccleson's performance in that moment is so brilliant because his eyes start darting around. And you do feel like he has had a crisis of faith, a crisis of confidence. And he gets to the point where he even lets David Burton go. And the first time I watched it, I was so caught up, as we've talked about, on, oh, my God, Matt, that's it. This guy's going to kill you. Like, this is is the end for you because you're a crazy person who believes that this man that you tied to a wheelchair is actually God. And yet what he said earlier in the episode to John about how there needs to be a reckoning for this guy, like God's judgment's going to come for this guy. So shall he reapeth as he soweth. Then you send a biblical symbol to strike David Burton down. Matt watches it all. And he turns around and says, that was the guy I was telling you about. I think in that point, if you're Matt Jameson, a man of faith, I don't see how your faith is not validated by what you saw just happen to what you now will believe is a false prophet. He was smote. He was struck down by a symbol of the Lord, by God, the Lion of Judah, uh, as user Jankinator sent in uh, and told us that people have cited all these biblical references to lions, as we talked about on our Sunday podcast, a biblical reference to a lion. Matt has just been reading the book of Daniel, which also references these things on the way over. You're telling me that a guy who's reading about lions and talking about the biblical imagery of lions and sees lions strike down a false prophet doesn't feel like, having said earlier in the episode that he's going to get what he deserves— doesn't feel like that's God acting through uh, the lion himself and taking this man down. Like I was more convinced the second time around that Matt will be all the way back on board by the end of this episode. I can see it. I mean, I could certainly see it. I definitely can. But when you see him at the end of the episode, when he turns around, you don't still see a cynical guy at all. Like you don't see that that guy, like the tone has not changed yeah. at all. I think it's a shit-eating grin. Like, I think that's a shit-eating grin. I think that is Matt spiking the football and saying, that's the guy I was telling you about. Like, I was telling you that this was going to happen, and this is exactly what happened. Don't you remember? That's why I love this show on the week-to-week, because, like, for right now, all of those possibilities still exist. Right, Uh, right. Yeah, this is a a Schrodinger's Matt. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. which Matt are we going to get? Yeah, you could open the box and Matt's alive, or he could be dead. 
Yeah, it could be it could be a few different ways. I mean, I can totally see that, and I do think that the imagery is on your side. It's on the side of your argument. Um, I think it's at least on the side of of Matt being um, having faith restored. But I wonder if it's if it's Matt having faith restored in in Kevin or in a higher power. You know, maybe having some humility of like. Yeah, maybe I am just like kind of being a total dingus about this whole book of Kevin thing and I'm looking, you know, to 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 lionize, really. Ah, I like that. You know, a a figure that I have no business lionizing. Who am I to do that? I'm just supposed to follow the will of the Lord, uh the will of my creator. Um and I could see him getting away from the Kevin stuff and still being religious and still having that faith. Um, Let me ask you this, uh, because this leads into a really good comment from our great friend, R. Philly. R. Philly says, let no man utter his name, lest he become him. We learned the story of the he in question was that in his later years, he did a great deed, siring hairs despite the impossibility of the task. He is dead, but is now worshipped by his fervent disciples who will never forget him. I know I'm crazy, but am I being too crazy in drawing a literal rather than metaphorical parallel to Matt here? Was this an exercise in foreshadowing the legacy of Matt in some way? Does the man whose actions killed a god earn his own disciples at the end of the story? Oh, my so you- God. So what happens if Matt has become Frasier? Uh, right. What What happens if the <laughs> remainder of the Matt... Does that make Nora Niles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's right. Yes, and Kevin uh, Sr. is uh, sitting in a chair somewhere with a little uh, dog. You just, David Hyde, pierced my heart with that joke. Uh, <laughs> no, I, but what happens if he's become Frazier? Like, I mean, what happens if he's become this lion, this legendary? Because if this is the book of Kevin, yeah. does this merit a mention in the book of Kevin? And then a false prophet arose and was struck down by a lion? Oh, I just like the idea of Matt now conquering the boat and conquering the cult and traveling with the cult forever. And, like, you know, maybe, like, Matt's hedonistic destiny has presented itself. Certainly (laughs) he's been in kind of, like, you know, dank and dirty situations in the past, and maybe that's where he's going. That feels a little unholy for Matt Jameson. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. Unless, like, you know, we've kind of... Sometimes the show has presented Matt in, like... A, I don't know if antagonistic is the is necessarily the right way. Although you know he was kind of trolling people in the way that the guilty remnant were trolls uh, in the first few stories involving Matt on this show, going around with flyers and like myth busting people who were departed as not being worthy of a rapture. So it can't be a rapture. Um, I think there was a really, really uh, – did you read this Vulture article, this interview between Matt Solar-Zeitz and Damon Lindelof at all, Antonio? I did, man. What a uh, That was like uh, fulfilling my yearly obligation for Catholic Mass. That was a spiritual experience. It was, it was really great. If you guys haven't read this, uh, it's, it's really – We'll put a, a link in the show notes. A phenomenal, phenomenal, very touching interview between – Very personal. Very personal between uh, Vulture. I believe he's Vulture's exclusive film critic. I, I don't know if that's the case. I think that uh, that that Matt uh, Solar Zeitz he he writes for I think RogerEbert.com potentially as well. Anyway, yeah, he's he a high, highly gar- highly regarded critic, TV critic uh, who who had um, who who wrote a really personal story about a year or so ago uh, about the death of his wife and what he went through and all of these um, really turbulent emotions. And he's also written in the past about how Matt. Jameson is the character that resonates with him the most on The Leftovers and how he's also said that The Leftovers is like his favorite show on TV right now. 
And it's kind of uh, kind of cool to like read that Damon Lindelof. Like, I feel like this is usually inadvisable and explains a good amount about Damon Lindelof's own psyche and why he had to walk away from Twitter. But he basically confessed to writing this past episode as almost a dedication to this man, uh, to Matt Solarzeitz. And it's, again, like a really epic, emotional introspective read into the psychology of uh, not just Damon Lindelof and this critic, but also this character, I thought. Uh, I thought a lot of really, really fascinating discussion about who Matt is and and what Matt believes. And uh, one of the things that I believe it was Lindelof who said is like the, you know, the unspoken part of Matt going around and showing flyers about who really departed and why some of these people are bad people. And it's proof that this couldn't have been a rapture, that this couldn't have been God picking all of the good people and leaving behind all of the crummy people, uh, that this was proof of that. And the unspoken piece of that is like, and also it can't be a rapture because I'm here. Right. You know, I wasn't taken. So if right. I wasn't taken, like, obviously there's arrogance to that. I didn't want to say it before, but there is, there's arrogance to Matt Jameson. Um, And I feel like this episode really served him humble pie. And I think that that's the arc. I think that that's the arc for Matt. I think the arc for Matt is a guy who was arrogant, a guy who really did strive so hard to find higher meaning and to serve that higher meaning, only to hear it from a fake God saying to him, there is no higher meaning. I'm not watching you. I'm not judging you. I never have been. I never was. I'm not currently. And despite the fact that this false god is taken out by a higher power, if that's what you want to call the lion, my read on that is Matt seeing that moment and still feeling like, all right, well, time to move on. You know, time time to get going here and time to figure out what's the next step. I think that the that the growth for a character like that, if we're trying to, you know, we've talked about this on a couple of podcasts now. If, like, the rubric you want to look at the character arcs for this show and certainly, like, the journey of the show, uh, although Lindelof does point out in the article this is not a show about grief, so it kind of takes away from the theory a little bit, but I still think that you can read things this way. The show is, uh, is deserving of multiple interpretations. I yes. still think that if you can look at the show from, like the framework of the stages of accepting grief and like your your if your nirvana is is hitting acceptance if that's the final step then i think acceptance for matt is going to be accepting mortality and accepting what's in front of you right now it wouldn't shock me at all if we don't see matt again until a point where he has like found mary and noah again and has been mary mary yeah and has like gone and rededicated what little time he's got left to that that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I I do think you're making a good point about grief, and we have to keep in mind, with regard to Mary, that Matt himself, whether the show is about grief or not, Matt was directly impacted by the departure because he didn't lose someone and they disappeared and he had no idea where they went. He lost someone because someone else disappeared and a car accident happened and his wife became comatose. And that's a very different thing, right? We, we This is a Matt whose favorite book of the Bible 
is the book of Job, which is very much about a man whose faith was tested with multiple tests from God. And the, the gist of it is basically like, because I can, which is essentially the same answer that David Burton gives about why the departure happened. If God caused it, because I could do it because I, because I could. Uh, and that is seemingly the thrust of the book of Job in many respects is it's, there is this idea that Job can withstand all these tests that God can prove to Satan that if Job can withstand all this stuff, that Satan doesn't have a choice, that, that there is all the, there is a, enough faith in one person that can pr- disprove Satan's whole goal. And Job is the guy singled out because he uh, is so faithful. And Matt assigns a lot of value to that and aligns himself with that and probably interprets a lot of the difficulty that's brought into his life through that lens. And I think it's fascinating to think about that guy because that's a guy uh, and user Jankinator who sent us a lot of great stuff from Reddit uh, and who participates in a lot of those threads and goes back and forth. Uh, Jankinator said that uh, that he thought ultimately, uh, I assume he, uh, that he thought ultimately that Matt, his mission didn't, he didn't change when he was talking to David Burton. It's just that his mission changed, that he thought God sent me to take Kevin and bring him back to Miracle. And then he encountered David Burton, who was a blasphemer, who was denying God, who was pretending to be God. And then Matt's mission changed. And Matt's mission at that point is, I'm going to take out David Burton. Personally, I think that that doesn't really jibe with what happens. I think that David Burton unintentionally strikes a lot of gold with Matt Jameson when he talks about the fact that you are doing all of this for you, not for me, not for anybody else. You're doing it for you. I think that that resonates on some level with Matt. I think that in his darkest moments, that's what Matt is worried about, that there is no God or that there is no faith. And, and you think about- that David Burton like strikes that vein just kind of randomly? Like just oh, on sure, because, because Patrick McNally, somebody sent us this feedback where Patrick said, remember that one of the world's greatest pastimes is questioning both God and Jesus' divinity and validity. Matt is just joining the crew. Faith takes time, but doubt can be immediate. Yeah. And Jesus himself on the cross was alleged to have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so even the most like fervent or even the most divine among us have had reasons to question this. As I said, Martin Scorsese just made a three plus hour movie about this very topic called Silence, about this idea that the conversations are often one sided. And if you're Matt Jameson, you typically have these one sided conversations and what's thrown in your way are all these tests. And yet you've been reading about lions. There's a lion on the boat. It's a lot of Christian imagery in the lion. And a lion kills the false prophet by the end of the episode. If you're that guy, I don't see how by the end of the episode you don't assign that value. Uh, And we know Matt is a guy who is sort of on a journey. We've seen him go to a lot of weird places in in the pursuance of that journey. We've seen him put himself in a lot of compromising and and difficult positions where he gets beaten up or stoned or put in the stocks or the pillory uh, with a sonic screwdriver dangling down for all to observe. Um, This is a guy who puts himself in those positions in many respects, I think, to test his faith or to say like, well, I put up with all of this, so I am more spiritual. But in reality, maybe there is some element where he feels like he's doing it for himself. Remember, his origin story, Josh, is about a kid who prayed for attention, 
That's what he wanted more than anything, is he wanted attention when his new sister was born, and God gave him a test in its place, and spared him, and spared him, and he's not sure why now it's coming back, and that's what comes up when he's talking to David Burton, but this is a part of Matt Jameson, that he's always had this weird relationship with God. This is the guy who, when his parents were burning to death, Josh, he told Nora, no, they're not suffering, they're in a better place, and Nora herself is, that's just a lie, and I really like the idea of Matt like many other people, as Patrick McNally puts out, he's struggling with this. And this is not an easy thing for him. And this is not a clean thing. It's not an all-one thing. It's not a one-dimensional thing. Matt Jameson is a three-dimensional character, an incredible three-dimensional performance by Christopher Eccleston. And I think that that includes these questions of faith. And the fact of the matter is, when it comes down to it, that's thematically resonant, right? Because Kevin Sr. himself, we've seen, he thinks he's the guy at the center of the story. We had a similar episode ending earlier this season where we weren't sure what he meant. Did he mean that you got the wrong Kevin? Did he mean that to mean Kevin, my son, is the right Kevin? He's the, the, the center of Kevinism? Or does he still think it's his story? We weren't 100% sure about that. Your mileage may vary, open to interpretation. And we have this same kind of ending with Christopher Christopher Eccleston here. Is he fully on board with his faith? Or is his faith altered by what he saw or what he experienced? We don't know. And the thing about faith is that it is like that, right? It's nebulous. It's vapid. It's airy. It can change. It is subject to being tested. It is constantly being presented with evidence to the contrary and things that will rattle it and shake it. And it does require you to continue to be on this path to cement it. And that's I think for a show that you're right, isn't purely about grief, but is certainly about the search for meaning. I think that this is a great way for Matt Jameson to be the lens of spiritual meaning to see that even those people are constantly struggling. We know, as we talked about, that that's what happened with Islam, that that's what happened with the origin story of the prophet, that he wasn't sure right away that the voice he was hearing was the voice of the angel Gabriel carrying the message of God, or was he crazy? We know that that's what happened with Joseph Smith and the beginning of the LDS church, where there were a lot of prophecies that corrected older prophecies, where he was basically saying, I screwed that up. I got that wrong. So this is a story about faith with Matt Jameson, and faith can change, and it can adapt, and it can be questioned and challenged and it can emerge stronger as a result and what i find most fascinating about this is as we talked about on sunday we have these characters who are at opposition with that uh kevin garvey is questioning junior he's questioning his own role in this nora is totally out on it laurie is totally out on it john and michael they're a little more in on it so and we know what grace playford is willing to do she's willing to kill randos in pursuance of this thing yeah So we have all of these characters at different positions on this spectrum, and they're all seemingly going to come into each other's world. I think it's a great showdown that we've got, and we've seen that all of them are willing to do and accept crazy things in pursuance of that. I think when John and Laurie look at that lion mauling David Burton, they see a lion mauling this guy. When Matt looks at it, Matt sees it as divine justice, in my opinion. And I think that that's fantastic that we have all of these different things because faith is so varied some people feel very differently than others some people are all out some people are agnostic some people are all in some people are in but questioning like there are so many levels of that and this is a show where when the world changed with the departure all of those things are going to come to the forefront matt has always been a character who has questioned certain aspects of this thing. Now he's all in on Kevinism. Even within the context of this episode, we do see John telling him, like, Matt, 
we're not going to get back to miracle. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to accept that whatever's going to happen is going to happen here. And that's an evolution of the faith of Matt Jamison because he was sure that it had to happen in miracle. And now it seems like he's on a different path. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is like I, I, I think that he can still be on a righteous path and still have a path of faith. And, you know, if if I hate to say the L word, but, you know, I, you Laurie? know, I. <laughs> well, it is about Laurie. Is you know, I'll 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 do this without saying the L word. You know, if it's if it is a man of science, man of faith type of thing, it rhymes is, with cost, which is which is territory that Damon Lindelof does really enjoy. I think that the that the conversations between Laurie and Matt are are interesting in this episode in that yes. regard. And she is a skeptic, and she is the one who's saying like. I like I know that Kevin Garvey defecates four times a day. I know that he searches every cabinet <laughs> except for the wine cabinet to grab like the right glass. He searches forever. Like this guy is not the Messiah. And then of course there's the thunderous boom that gives Matt a little bit more of a charge and that's a that's a shit eating grin in that scene for sure. I'll sign off on that. Oh yeah, the the turbulence. Hundo, hundo, hundo. Um but Maybe there's something to, you know, Lori is still holding to this. And, like, she is saying, like, you're galvanizing a man who I believe to be mentally ill. Um, and I don't know. I, I think I think that, that some of that could reach him. I think that some of that could reach him. And I still think that Matt could be – I think that Matt can still walk a spiritual path that is a little bit more centered on his own life. That is a little bit more centered on himself. I think that – David Burton, I agree, pushed a button. Um, but I don't think that seeing David Burton get wiped off the face of the earth negates what David Burton said. I think that what what he said was so resonant and so powerful that it had to bring to light and bring voice to something that Matt has been wondering himself deep down inside for so long. And I think that character growth would be continuing that line, you know, would be continuing that thread and seeing where that takes him rather than just doing the 360. What's the point of that? Just to totally, totally reinforce exactly how he's feeling at the start of the episode. I don't know that that really establishes or, or, or buys us anything. Um, I think that it's more interesting if it's, okay, maybe he's right. Maybe I am writing this stupid book just because I want to be important. Maybe I should focus a little bit more on other things that are more immediately important, like the fact that I'm probably not going to be on God's green earth for much longer. And I'm not talking about days necessarily or even months. Like it could be a year. It could be many years before before we lose Matt, but it could be more of a stop and smell the roses and sip the coffee a little bit more. No, but you're right because he has changed in that regard by the end of the episode, right? Because he's hiding that from people throughout the course of the episode. And then right before the smiting, uh, he says, and I'm dying. Like, that's happening. So he comes clean to them about the fact that he's dying right before he sees David Burton get smote down. So the question is, like, has he, does the David Burton thing bring him back to where he was? Or... Is is this a Matt thing where the story of Matt is? He's able to change. He is able to see things differently. He's able to lens the world through a lens that allows him to say, like, I shouldn't be viewing the world this way. I'm getting caught up. So so let's follow that a little bit further. And... You and I have talked about like the the fanaticism behind Kevin and what's involved in the book of Kevin as and even just using that word 
it's not necessarily positive connotation, right? And we've been afraid of like the the Abraham and Isaac stuff, and you've certainly been really afraid, I think, of what this could mean for Kevin's long term prospects. Oh yeah, uh, can you Big and I? Time. Like, Big I mean, time. like, is that good? Like, is there a, is that like a good thing if we if we kill Kevin Garvey? Like, if if these people are directly involved in something that leads to his permanent death? Listen, not- I'm behind on my Bible enough that I'm probably going to the bad place, but uh, <laughs> I would say I don't think Isaac gets killed in that story, right? Like the whole point is God just seeing if Abraham would do it, not that Abraham goes through with it. Right. So maybe that's part of this. I don't know. Uh, right. It's concerning to me, though. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I think that like if that were the direction that you know Matt was really going in that in that way, he's really walking that path, and he's going to be at a place where he's really ready to do that. I think like that's the point where we now have to look at Matt as maybe not like irredeemable or or as like the villain of the leftovers. There's no villain of the leftovers. You know, I think there's. That that would lead me to a place of like walking away and just like not feeling great about Matt Jameson. I think that for like our really key central characters, I again and, and maybe it's the optimist in me. I feel like this show wants us to feel good about those people. And I think for I think for for Matt, I think like the the way you feel good about that character, or at least the way that I would feel good about Matt, is if he has an evolution in his thinking and realizes it's not about finding a messiah it's not about creating a new idol you know it's not about you know putting somebody on a pedestal i think that there would be something incredibly powerful in matt seeing the divine in human existence and life and in the world around him and that's the matt that i see at the end of this episode uh i i could totally see it the other way too but the but the preferred the preferred version of it for me is a matt who's like no longer like he's got his like his foot to the you know he's grinding metal right like at the start of this episode he is pushing that pedal all the way down he's like bursting through the floor of the car uh i i like that the end of this episode could be read as him like not like slamming on the brakes but like easing off the gas slowing the car down to a stop getting out of the car looking around at the beautiful australian vistas around him taking in a whiff of that sweet Australian air. I imagine it's sweet. Uh, and appreciating life a little bit more. That's a happy ending for Matt Jameson to me. I just, uh, I think you're right, but I don't see how that plays in the context of this story. We have one pilot. He's sitting, waiting to take off. He probably can't. It does seem like we're on a collision course with the Kevins. And regardless of how Matt feels about how Australia smells, what smells bad about it is his cared about kevin senior and kevin jr are there acting a fool with some crazy white fella thinking and his mission maybe even if it was spiritually enhanced to begin with is still to be there for the people that he cares about and i don't know how that comports with him saying nope it's time for me to go back to mapleton and find my wife and son uh so that's the part i'm concerned about well that, yeah i mean just the, the mechanics of that are difficult but if we're yes. already accepting that time jumps are a thing that can be done on the leftovers with the you know final scene of the first episode of this season what's to say that further time jumps won't happen like in the finale for instance or he could get there i mean that could be his ending i could buy that i just think he's going to have a more interesting role to play 
regardless of where we feel he's at right now with his system of belief, right. he's about to be confronted with something that's going to call belief systems directly into question. I agree with that. Yeah, so that he's is in a- Australia. Dude's not leaving Australia anytime soon. Like he's here. Yeah. Like 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 uh, like John said. Like he's here through the anniversary. Like there's and- just no there's no getting back, and there's no plot utility in like you know put it like improbably sending him back. He's already been through his improbable ambition, and Lindelof even says in that interview is like I don't think that it's a spoiler to say that like this is like your last like matt centric episode like this is like your big matt journey of an episode yeah uh, we had all these matt scenes we had fake idols uh, we're very much <laughs> right, in right. Uh, survivor australia here uh no not survivor australia just kidding um but yeah we have all these things happening and i think it's fascinating because as you're saying like what does that mean ultimately like that's not this is the last matt centric episode but as we talk about the value of this episode, the value of the Kevin Senior episode, beyond being great episodes of television that we enjoyed watching at the time, what's the value in the context of the season? The value is we are playing the, this game of religious chess, ultimately, with Kevin Garvey as a pawn in the middle of it. And Junior, that is. And the question is, what role does Matt play on the board? Is he the bishop? Uh, is he himself uh, thinking that he's some kind of bigger piece? Does Kevin Sr. think he's the king? There are all these questions abound. And I like that after both the Kevin Sr. episode and this Matt episode, we don't 100% know what role they're going to occupy. And I think as a result of that, if their opinions vacillate or change in the context of future interactions with Junior... I think it's earned because I think we've seen reasons for both of them to go through these tests and to question their faith and to have their faith validated or not validated. We talked about in the senior episode a lot, the crazy white fellow thinking episode. It seems like he's nuts. It seems like he's assigning value to a bird pecking on a tape. I mean, that's literally, literally crazy white fellow thinking. And yet, whether you whether it's the synchronicity that's been brought up and mentioned in previous podcasts that we've done here or whether it's something else, he does end up at the exact spot that Grace's children died where there's a cross. Now, what are, what are the odds of that? What are what are the what's the likelihood of that happening? What is that a coincidence? Is it synchronicity? Is it something like that? What value will he assign to that? What about Kevin and all of that? And what about Matt with the lion? Uh, we had a great comment from Laura Olson. That's Laura Olson and not Larry. Uh, Laura says, the boat made me think of the story Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm pretty sure that was a shout out to that part of the Bible. People were worshiping false gods as well as all that fornicating, etc. You're yada yadaing the best part, Laura, uh, which led God to destroy that city. Interesting, too, that there was a false god on that boat. Uh, and how the devil puts obstacles in our way to doubt our faith. Maybe that's why I was laughing so much during the episode. My gosh, the obstacles that Matt has had to overcome. The plane, the boat, the dirty joke, and all that fornicating around him, and yet he's still a man on a mission from God. Kind of makes me hope we'll see the two guys in suits a la the the Blues Brothers. Yeah, Uh, there's no sunglasses or cigarettes. But Alex Wilpon pointed out to me that there were two false idols killed. It wasn't just David Burton. It was also Frazier, right? That Frazier himself was this idol that was referenced or or worshipped by this cult, the cult of Frasier. And so that that's part of it. And I think that's fascinating that we've got two false gods, ultimately, two false worshipped people or things killed in the right in front of Matt's face because it's important. We didn't just see David Burton getting mauled, Josh. We heard off screen that poor poor descendant of Frasier got the Harambe treatment uh, too soon, I think, too soon. Uh, but but that's what happened. We saw both of them, or we heard both of them probably get killed right in front of Matt's face. So not one, but two false idols 
got killed right in front of Matt's face. It just feels like that's the kind of thing, like Kevin Garvey assigning random value to things that Matt can't help but assign value to. 100%, but that, to me... I that I feel like that bolsters my view. Um, and it might, it might. You're right. Like it might, it might, it might be seen as so random or no, not even that. But like if if the lion is kind of representing like the true god figure, like the true god figure hopping on David Burton and ripping this idol to shred uh, to shreds, then then this this god figure also gets killed. I like it better if it's one shred. Yeah, it's you're right because this god figure also gets killed. Right, and he's you can't have it both it, ways. Yeah, you know. So he's what he's watching that version of the Lord die as well. Yeah. Like he's watching that version of divine intervention also die. And I think that that creates the opportunity for something new. Right. Uh, either way. I mean, you could read that both false idols being killed is, is proof that God is great or God in the form of a lion smiting the false idol is proof that God is great. Like you could read that either way. And it really does depend on Matt. And Matt is a guy who, as we've seen, I think even in that conversation with David Burden, I do think it's impossible to say that there isn't him questioning his own faith. There is no way if he changes his mission in the middle of that conversation and thinks or, or before it and thinks my goal now is to get rid of David Burton. He doesn't untie the guy like he unties the guy because something the guy says resonates with him. There is no question about that in my mind. There's no way that if Matt is anti David Burton being guy by the end of that conversation that he's untying him and just letting him go. And yet that is what happens. So this is a Matt who is questioning a lot of what he's seeing. Uh, If you'll recall, at some point in that first season, when he first sees Kevin Jr. and he's handing out the first time we meet Matt, if I'm not mistaken, He says to Matt, let your dad know he's off the hook and you're off the hook, too. And the implication there, he says that to Kevin Jr., the implication is that some, at some point he put them on the hook or he thought they were on the hook. And now he's saying they're off of it. So Matt's opinions do change over time. Uh, and it's fascinating to, to think of, of how, that go, how all that goes. Yet his faith does seem to stay with him. Uh, and so I think we're just going to have to wait and see how that ultimately plays out. I just think it's good that we have a Matt that we're even wondering where he is at the end of this episode. Because as we put him in position on the chessboard later in other episodes, we will be asking ourselves, is he a knight? Is he the bishop? Like, what is his role in this? And can we really validate or or, or can we really assume that his, his role is self-righteous or altruistic? Or what is the, the reasoning behind his role? I'm not sure we can know that. Um, changing gears a little bit, I want to know what you have to say about this. Well, With, what I have to say about this is you just said changing gears and isn't that a great opportunity to thank our sponsors over at true car antonio let's do it let's change some gears into true car let's change some gears into true car because antonio there's something about true car a lot of people don't know at this point if they listen to our podcast i hope they know but go go on go on how many thousands how many hundreds of thousands of vehicles are there? if you do not know this using true car can help you buy a used car in fact there are over seven hundred thousand pre-owned vehicles available from true car certified dealers nationwide antonio i believe that answers your question uh whether you're looking to buy new or used you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience through our true car certified dealer network 
There are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. You'll see what other people paid for the car you want so you can know what a fair price is and you'll feel confident in Antonio Mazzaro. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car you want. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states, probably not Melbourne. <laughs> or Melbourne, Kentucky. Yeah, uh, that is. Uh, it's great to change gears because I want to ask you this great question from uh, Dom Malpieti. Dom said, "Hey guys, there are many things in the show that are recurring that are recurring themes, and most uh, have some value that can be assigned. One repeating theme is animals being put down by man: the dogs, the deer, the kangaroo, and now a lion have all been casualties. What are we supposed to glean from this?" Hmm. That's what very... is it with all these? What is it with all these animals dying, Josh? This is not a PETA-friendly show. Like it this, is not. Yeah, I'm not. This I've show not been is watching. firmly Team Gale. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. Uh, yeah, uh, not PETA. Uh, yeah, exactly. No, I don't know what's happening here. Like this is definitely a theme. Are we on the same page with that? Like there are these multiple things that Dom brings up that are animals getting killed in this show, and I, they're always being killed by man, as Dom points out. There are dead birds as well, I think, that are in the hotel. Are we going to get to a point, Josh, where we go to go to the hotel and it's actually a zoo? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. There's a kangaroo, a lion, some birds, uh, some deer, some dogs. It's a little great uh, menagerie here. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know. You know, that, that would be an extreme episode. That'd be pretty amazing. What if the finale is just the undead zoo? I don't think that we're ready for that. Yeah, we really aren't. But it is true it is Zootopia, weird. Antonio. It is weird. Do you do you do you I mean what we can we can lost it or not. There's a dead polar bear in lost. We can get into other things, uh, animals dying. There's a there's a frozen donkey wheel for crying out loud. But uh but really, is this a Damon Lindelof thing or is there something more to this? I don't think there's any I mean I, at this point I don't know how we can tie that all together. It certainly is a theme or a recurring thing that keeps coming up. Animals being put down by man. I mean BBA, the BBA was all about it. And when the BBA brought it up, he said the first time in the first season that they're not our dogs anymore. They don't belong to us. That these animals witnessed the departure and they went feral and they did all these things and that human beings are going because we're animals are going to go to the same point. Is that the case? Is it the situation where we're going to see the more animalistic tendencies of humans and it's going to play into that uh, even more? Because a lot of these animals have been put down by police, uh, the kangaroo, uh, the deer, the dogs. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming the lion. Like These are all not just being put down by man, but being put down by authority figures, by police. Is this going to play into the Kevinism thing at all? Well, I think I was just thinking to myself, like, how many people have we seen just get killed? Like, we've seen people die on this show. But how many people have we seen get, like, outright shot and killed? Like, who's been murdered? Uh, or not even murdered, but, like, who's been killed with violence? Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't say the BBA was murdered. That guy was shot in the line of duty. You know, he got he, killed with violence, though. He certainly he, that's a, that's a murder. That's a murder. I mean, it's a murder with an alibi, but it's a murder. It's a homicide. It's a homicide. Uh, the cause of death on that death certificate is homicide. You're the lawyer. You know the you know the deal. Uh, but like that, you know, are, are we driving to a point where we're going to see more of that? Like, are we going to see a moment where 
good lord, Kevin Sr. is just, like, refusing to not kill his kid. That's, you know? I mean, that's what we've been concerned about, right? Yeah. Like, that's what we're building to is a man killing another man or a group of men killing another man or a group of people killing a person. Like, that is the concern that we've seen. We saw it with Gladys in season one. We, her name was Gladys. Never forget. Never forget. We saw that stoning happen. We did see Holy Wayne die in season one. However, we don't really know how that happened. Kevin just happened upon him in a bathroom, and Wayne had been gut shot, it looked like. We don't really know what happened. Peter Berg bit it on this show, Josh, and we saw how that happened, and we saw murders there. So there have been moments like Patty took herself out of the equation Pretty handily. Uh, there have been things that have happened that we have seen, but I don't think we've ever seen it really this personally. I mean, Evie was killed with a drone strike, right? So I don't know how that plays in. We know that when Kevin went to the hotel in International Assassin, he did see birds flying around the lobby of the hotel, and Virgil slapped one of those birds down and was like, I got it, killed the bird, and we didn't know if that tied into Erica's putting the birds in the box or not. Uh, It will be fascinating if we go to the hotel again. Are we going to see any animals in the in-between? And I think we'll have to revisit this if we do at that point. But right now, it seems like this the animal murder has all happened from authority figures. Save Dean killing dogs. uh, But he does that with Kevin by the end of that story. Uh, There's a lot of authority figures murdering animals or killing animals that has come up. And my concern is when Dean first references this with the dogs in season one, his implication is this is eventually how we're all going to be. Right. We're all going to react. We're all going to wake up. We're all going to become feral. At that point, it was three years after the departure. Three being a very biblical number, a very religious number. That was a value that a lot of people were assigning at that point. It's three years in. We're about to all wake up. That was the predominant prevailing theme of the first six episodes or so of season one. Now we're seven years out, and it's the same thing. People are saying, and mostly Matt, are saying it's seven years out. It's the end of the world. This is a biblical number. Seven years, floods after this. This is going to happen. Seven, seven, seven. It's the other biblical number. And I don't know if that changes the way we look at these animals or these murders, but it's very reminiscent of what we saw happening with season one. And that season was very much about whether Kevin Jr. was crazy or not. So we're bringing ourselves back to where we started at the beginning of this series. And I think there's a lot of synergy or uh, there's just a lot of uh, there's a lot of symmetry there uh, in terms of like connecting with this particular season. So I do think that that's a good observation. I'm just not 100 percent sure what it means. 100 percent in that. (laughs) a hundred percent that I don't know what it means either, but I think it's a good observation. And I do wonder, you know, it's like to some degree, a control thing, you know, to some degree, like these, these are people that we're watching who have no control over anything anymore. Uh, Or at least that's where you start with the leftovers. Uh, And I think that there's, there's a, there's an element of, I don't know, just, just kind of reigning in some form of chaos with chaos itself. And I think that what's what's fascinating to me in terms of the the circularity of the BBA is, man, if he didn't call his shot in terms of what was going to happen to him, you know, ah, his literal shot, <laughs> literal, literally. I mean, he he became feral, you know, when he when he shows up in the in the yes. premiere, he is taught he's barking mad, Antonio, about dogs taking over the world. And when he is laughed at, essentially. He he bites, you know, rabidly and has to be put down like old yeller. Uh, and it's it's brutal. And I, I think that there is some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy to that. 
And I don't know what it means for someone like Kevin, who was the character who was most in the BBA's orbit. I would be looking at him for whatever the culmination of, you know, I don't know if I want to call it a theme, but it's certainly consistent imagery that there are animals being put down like this. And is there going to be a human character that's a main character that is going to be acting more animalistic and is going to be needed to be taken out in this way, in a really violent way? You could say that the BBA already satisfied that uh, rather than this being something we're building towards. Um, But if it is something we're building towards, I would be looking in the Kevin Garvey Jr. storyline for some resolution to that because I think he's the guy who's been the closest linked to this imagery. I agree. And and that will be, I mean, it's going to be fascinating how all that plays out. Obviously, uh, we had <laughs> we had a discussion, we had another comment about uh, about that imagery and about the Kevin Garvey element of it. And I think that this is important. This is also from Dom. Dom says, in the International uh, Assassin Hotel, when Kevin asks Virgil about the well, Virgil goes to hand him a pamphlet, but not before mentioning the pamphlet for, quote-unquote, the cave. This show doesn't waste dialogue, so it had to be of some purpose. And since the well is where Kevin had to go to vanquish his adversary, is the cave where someone else has to go. We know David Burton was in the hotel. Was that a pamphlet for him since he emerged from a cave? Or now that Kevin is in Australia, is the cave going to be for him in a return to the hotel? Also, is that the same one the cave people died from the season two premiere? I don't think that's the same cave, but... This cave pamphlet, Josh, in International Assassin. International Assassin is like the Bible of the leftovers. We keep going back to it for meaning and trying to interpret these things in it. We had talked David Burton up a ton. We had talked about this is this guy, David Burton. He was at the bridge. He was in the hotel. He's the karaoke guy. He did all these things. A letter sent, blah, 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 blah. We talked him up a ton. And now that we've met him, and I think we've seen him die, was this pamphlet for the cave? Is there any more meaning to this? Or was that just an Easter egg for these people who now, now that we know the David Burton story, we can look back and be like, oh, pamphlet for the cave. That was a reference to David Burton. Yeah, I don't know that we're going to any caves. Uh, I think we're done with the caves in final seasons of Damon Lindelof shows. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe we're going to uh, the temple. Uh, maybe that's where we're headed. Maybe well, not it a does cave. seem to some degree we've been talking about a temple of sorts. Are there any na- uh, names written on the inside of that cave, you think, Josh? Uh, or are there perhaps two skeletons in that cave? Uh, there are a lot of options for these caves. I'm realizing this now. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's fascinating that we had a reference to a cave in that card. We're now getting uh, the full David Burton story. I think the cave was mentioned in season two, so I think it could have been a little Easter egg for season two. But I do think it's fascinating that we thought David Burton was this thing. And now David Burton is another thing because he's clearly present on the show. And we have not only in card form, we have his full story. We had a great, really long comment from John McDonald. But I want to summarize parts of this. John pointed out that he thinks that if you want to look at this, that the Old Testament had a very three-tiered view of reality. That God was above, the people were in the middle, and the underworld or hell was below. And we have to look at all the Old Testament references throughout this show. There are a lot of them. Abraham and Isaac, Sarah being 91 when Isaac was born, all of these things, Daniel, all these Old Testament things John points out. But, but John says, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. God is on the top deck of the boat. He's in, he's in the top. He gives a card with his name. He doesn't say a word, but hands Matt something written. Uh, the bare minimum of information that is impersonal. God himself is distant and aloof. He's reading a Western where there's a clear line of good and evil. 
Anyway, he's above deck. He's disconnected from all that is happening and totally indifferent. John says, I think this is Matt's deepest fear about God. It's a sort of dealistic nihilism. You have a God, but he's indifferent and random. And Matt is trying to find meaning and believe in a larger plan, but his deepest fear is that it's all for nothing, that he is unknown by an uncaring God. He drags God down to the bowels of the ships to confront him. He projects all his fears and insecurities on him. And that is ultimately what we see in that his last line is a sermon. It's Matt preaching to the people that are there about his plan or about what he was talking about. And I think that's fascinating because we haven't really talked a ton, Josh, in our podcast about David Burton. But what do we make of this David Burton at this point? Is this meant to represent God to Matt? And that's David Burton's role in the story, as John observes. Matt's angry that David Burton is stealing Jesus' story. And that's fascinating to me, considering the Kevin Sr. and Kevin Jr. thing, where Sr. is feeling like Jr. is hijacking his story. And that's what really makes David Burton angry, that he's stealing the Jesus story. And isn't Matt kind of stealing the Jesus story? And isn't Matt kind of stealing that story? Story, right. Like that is that is a huge part of it. Right. Like we have talked about Matt and Matt's role in this. That is he hijacking this. So what do we make at this point of David Burton? David Burton also talks about how Jesus didn't die, that a twin died. Do you think that that's relevant at all? In what way? Like, how would that come into come into focus? Well, we had a lot of tweets and I'll give credit to Brendan Fitzpatrick. Uh, uh, Fitzy friend. Brendan. Yes. Yes. Do you, so you know what I'm talking about here. They Go think there might it. be a twin in play, that the real David Burton didn't die, that maybe this was David Burton's brother. And I don't want to be misstating that. I have to go back through my mentions and find the exact uh, exchange there. But is there a possibility that that wasn't really David Burton in play here, that that was somebody else? If so, I don't think that we would ever really get major confirmation on that. I feel like don't you feel like the David Burton story, like in terms of him being a physical presence on this show, is pretty much over? That guy just got ripped apart by a lion. I agree. My concern is, like, we built up this whole story of David Burton now. He had these really kind of crazy interactions with Kevin in the hotel, right. whether he was on the bridge or in the hotel. And this is it. Like, did we did we have those? Was well, that proof well, that David Burton was God? It, well, if he's dead now, we could certainly see him back in the hotel. Like there could be some resolution to that. And every time Kevin has gone there, David Burton has been there as well. Uh, so I could I could see him being physically involved in the show from that capacity. Like there could still be a David Burton thing that happens if Kevin gets back to the hotel and you and I once again, we agree that we will go there. Like, of course, uh, that's a, that's a place on the show. There's no way that we leave this series without returning to the hotel. Um, that being said, I think that the importance of David Burton could be that he was he was divine to Matt, that he had divine impact on Matt, like that would be that would be godlike enough for me uh, in terms of his importance on the show. I don't think that stopping down to like really figure out like the practicality and how that worked, uh, how the the cave of it all, how did that really play? With only a couple of episodes left on this show, I just don't. That's not something I'm particularly interested in, and I can't imagine that the writers are too. I think that the writers are more interested in our main characters, and unless that there's like a really uh, like narratively streamlined, elegant way of conveying that kind of information, I think that the show has to move much faster than it would require to to really hammer down the David Burton thing and like to find out that there's like I don't know, Daniel Burton feels easy. Let's go with Dylan Burton is his twin. <laughs> Dylan Burton, I like it. Yeah. 
I just think that there is there is something there. There's a there there that I don't have my head wrapped around yet, which is how does David Burton show up in the hotel every time Kevin has been there? And he is alive and well on the boat and then dead by the end of this. Are we going to get some more clarity or at least some more information about that? What if and two right. David Burtons pop up in the hotel? And it's like, okay, so now both twin brothers are dead. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That's easy. Yeah, that's easy enough. And we won't ever know what the deal with that was, but we can meet. But in draw. our podcast universe, <laughs> in our fan fiction, we will be able to divine what that means. Right, right. And I, I, I just think that that's something that's a little difficult to confirm within the context of what we're going to get for the rest of this series. But I think it's a funny, it's a fun read. I think it's a, an interesting read because I, I think I've seen a lot of people tweeting at me or a lot of confusion about well, how could David Burton be in the hotel if he quote-unquote died uh, in that incident with the hiking and that was a long time ago and that was before Kevin ever went to the hotel because we were already hearing about it in season two before that happened. And so if you say the hotel is a place you go to, it's the in-between. You go there when you're not quite ready to pass over, but you're dead. And it's and it's sort of a holding. We see Neil there. We see Patty there. We see Virgil there. All people who I think we knew were dead at that point in the series. And they hadn't crossed over. And Kevin's specific mission was to free Patty. And once he sent Patty over, he was allowed to come back. And that's the Jesus part of this story, right? That's the part that people are interpreting as Christ-like, because that's the reasoning for Jesus dying to begin with, dying on the cross so they could descend into hell and free the souls that were there because God had stopped taking people in and it took Jesus to reopen this pipeline. And that's ultimately the reasoning for why he dropped. And that is a huge part of it. Uh, And that he rose again on the third day in fulfillment of the scripture and then only later ascended into heaven some 40 or so days later. I don't know where David Burton fits into that equation. If he's in the hotel when Kevin is there. Is it because he died before? Is there a twin in play? Will he be in the hotel when Kevin is there? I don't really know. But now that he's a corporeal character on this show, who isn't just a vapid name who we were assigning as David Burton, now that we've seen that that actor is David Burton, I think that there could be something more in play. And I understand why the inclination is, okay, maybe his twin died in the accident because that's the backstory he provides in this episode with Jesus. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His brother died. His twin brother came back. Maybe that's exactly what happened with Right, and it's very easy to just, like, draw on your own history to, like, come up with a with a line in a moment, right? Like, yeah. you know, if he's, if he's basically just telling Matt what Matt wants to hear and he's just kind of, if he's sort of like a, a rabble rouser, like, if he is a guy who kind of just, like, uh, likes to push buttons or that's just not even that he likes to push buttons. He's just a button pusher. Um, he, could, he could be pushing buttons through his own personal story pretty easily. Yeah, he absolutely could. And I think we're just going to have to see. We've talked a lot about the in too deep angle, the back to the hotel angle. If Kevin goes back to the hotel, if it makes sense that David Burton would be there since he was there the two previous times, are we going to get two David Burtons? Is he going to be changed? Is he going to be begging for salvation? Double Burton. Are we going to double Burton? You don't want the double Burton as people on the, uh, on the, I was about to say the name. We are past midnight. On the F-boat is what I was going to call it, which also still applies. (laughs) Stumbled into something there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sure enough did. Yeah, Yeah. so that's the F-boat. Yeah, there's something going on there. I don't know. I don't really know. We had a lot of of feedback this week, just generally speaking, about Scripture. Uh, And we got into it a little bit uh, with 
regard to the way that David Burton could be evaluated. Uh, we talked about how Jenkinator pointed out all of the things that are present with what Matt was reading and all the lion references. Laura Olson sent the same thing in. Uh, but we had uh, a longer comment uh, from Shannon. And Shannon said, I'm a longtime listener to many of your podcasts. Thank you, Shannon. This is however the first time I'm writing about an episode. Generally, I feel like you guys are smarter and possibly more tuned to specific issues than I am. Definitely but this not week in is- my case. 100% not. Yeah, and I'm not reading that comment because Shannon said that, but uh, this week Shannon says it's a little different since I'm sure that even though I'm not your only Israeli listener, I'm one of the rare few who is also a modern Orthodox Jew and recognizes the prayers from this week's episode and might have some unique insight. Awesome. The the first one appears right after Matt's delighted smile following the moment of turbulence that interrupted Laurie's rant. It continues that he reads his Bible when everyone is asleep just before his nose begins to bleed. This is the same prayer that appears again after Matt apologizes to John about spilling the Evie beans and goes to the infirmary to acquire about the wheelchair and the axe or to acquire the wheelchair and the axe in order to carry out the David Burton mission. This prayer is in part of a longer as part of a longer prayer of 44 lines that each begins with the words, our father, our king, followed by a supplication. It is recited only during the high holidays, which are times of judgment. Our king, combined with a cry to a parental source of compassion to overlook some aspects of the cut and dry justice system, our father. And the last aforementioned 44 lines, the last of the aforementioned 44 lines is sung out loud in most communities. And that is what we heard twice during the episode. Our father, our king, have mercy upon us and answer us, for we have no deeds. Deal with us in righteousness and grace and save us. There are different translations, and I chose to refer to this one since it adequately highlights the issue with the original Hebrew text. There's a duality in the third line, which allows each, per- each person to read it the way he or, sees, he or she sees fit. Am I saying I've done nothing wrong so that I must be spared on this holy day of judgment? Or am I saying I've done only bad actions and therefore can only turn to God's sense of compassion and hope he will be able to bend the rules? Matt likes to think of himself as a believer, a complete man of utter faith. But in this episode, as well as throughout the series, we see a smidge of hesitation in his actions and a bit of doubt in his missions. Is he wrong? Will his actions turn out to be harmful ones, negative ones? I think the duality of the prayer came through beautifully in the scene with David Burton by the lion and how Matt looks at him from above before kneeling down to untie him. At first, and that's David Burton in the wheelchair. At first, he's looking his God in the eyes with anger and frustration at the wrongful sentence he believes he received. But moments later, he's looking up at his God and is searching for compassion, for paternal warmth and acceptance. A father figure who does not test him as a God would, but will embrace us for who he is. Matt is very confused and lost, and I believe it is quite clear that the lionesses are not. Call them a cult of religion or whatever, but when they yell, Frazier, it's after midnight, I'm in trouble, they do so with confidence. <laughs> oh, wow, you just became him. Yes, they do so with confidence, vigor, good word, Shannon, and most importantly, happiness. They are at peace, euphoric peace, and it is when Matt comes running back into the lounge after witnessing the murder and walks through all the lionesses being vigorous with each other that the second prayer appears and is intertwined with the joyous bangs and the bongos. That's on the bongos. This prayer is recited three times a day and speaks to a more grounded and daily relationship between God and the believer. Happy are those who dwell in your house. They shall ever praise you. This is a more constant dimension, one of permanency, and where the thirst for answer or confirmation has been quenched. And this perpetual state of exuberance, which stems from some sort of belief system, is deeply contrasted with Matt's experience of faith, dark and disappointing and frustrating. Well, I'm not saying one way is better than the other, although Matt's way of asking questions seems to be making it miserable, I am pointing out the contrast of these two prayers that we hear in the episode. 
And that's fascinating to me, right? That there are these people who are the Fraserites, who have bought into this thing and who are ecstatic and who are, there is no duality there. There is what Shannon, I think, says, the thirst for answer or confirmation has been quenched, a perpetual state of exuberance. And the prayer that is playing over Matt's actions that aren't, in contrast with that, is very much a dual prayer that Matt is a man who is searching for that. So, Josh, we had asked, like, what's going on here with these prayers throughout the episode? It seems like there is some thematic resonance there. Wow. That was very heavy. Yeah, uh, we don't have to go to church now. Like, we're good. Well, you know, look, in, in, in all honesty, I'm not a religious guy. I don't know if that has ever come across uh, on these podcasts. You're kidding before. me. Uh, you know, I, Antonio and I joke a lot about how, or at least I joke with Antonio, Antonio, you're, you're uncomfortable in, in responding to it, but I often say I'm Jewish-ish, you know, you know, I, I was born Jewish. I, I have, uh, I was raised in the Jewish faith in a very, very casual way. Um, I don't think I'm tech, like, I don't, I don't even know. I'm very religiously confused. My mother is not Jewish, but my father is, and yet I'm bar mitzvahed. So what is that? Uh, so I'm always kind of perplexed on how to weigh in on the subject. You know, I, I consider myself a spiritual guy. I do consider myself somebody who who believes that things happen for a reason, and and that we don't just disappear when it's all over. You know, that 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 it's not just the end. I don't know what happens next, um, but it's not something that I ever really engage with on a daily basis. And and when it comes to talk about this stuff from you know a really organized perspective i stumble and i feel awkward and i don't really know what to say um but there's there's really really powerful stuff here um and i I love the idea of the lionesses really knowing who they are and really and really knowing themselves and maybe that's not something that jives with your worldview i don't think that i would be comfortable on the f boat i think i would i think i would feel deeply uncomfortable on the f boat but i but i think that there is something really really heartening about the idea of uh, look, the people on the F boat, with the exception of David Burton, weren't killing anybody. They weren't hurting anybody. They all seemed to really, really love and accept exactly who they were and what they were doing and why they were there and celebrating being alive. And let's let's take the leftovers literally for a moment, or let's take Matt literally for the moment, and let's take the possibility that whatever is coming on the seventh anniversary of the departure is going to be cataclysmic. Right. Yeah. Let's let's consider the at least poss- at least as I've said, like on a personal level. Right. Right. But but let's cons- let's just like let's take the leap right now to consider it on a uh, like a, a, a wider on an end of the world level. Yeah. You know, let's let's look at it from that perspective right now. It, it, their final moments might be very unpleasant because the physical act of things ending, I can't imagine there's really a, a, a version of that that feels great. Um, but I think that in the days leading up to this, this is where, how many days are we away from the anniversary at this point? Yeah, three like or three four, or four. Five. Yeah. You know, yeah, not a lot. We're close. We're very, very close. Think about the Fraserites. Now I've become him. Uh, think about the Fraserites right now and think about what they're doing and how they are living their lives and what their final days are like. They are doing what they love. They are, they are doing what they believe in. Man, that's all we could ever want, in my opinion. Is like, Yeah, go out with a bang. <laughs> yeah, certainly in the case of these people. And, uh, you know, 
and not harming anybody and 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 just living their free wonderful existence as it pertains to each other and finding meaning in each other and this really is the brilliance of the leftovers and um and and really the brilliance in in sort of the writing conceit of this final season as damon lindelof has outlined this idea of i want the people who do not watch The Leftovers to wake up the next morning and read about what happened on The Leftovers the night before and be like, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. And then to discover it and be like, oh, wow, that worked. Like the the Mark Lynn Baker thing. And Mark Lynn Baker delivers an incredibly powerful scene, a very dramatic scene about you know, owning yourself in the in the face of overwhelming disappointment or grief or loss or whatever, uh, and that having it be actually Marklin Baker as Marklin Baker doing that, and how that sounds absurdly ridiculous, but when you watch it, it works and it makes sense within the universe of the show. And I think same exact thing can be said for this Frasier storyline, the Frasier cult, the F boat. Uh, I think that that is absolutely what we are seeing here this idea of this sounds nuts sorry to say on paper you know it sounds like a like if you were just somebody who was you know scrolling through your feedly and you saw a recap of this episode and you did not watch this show and then you just read that you'd be like what is even happening on this show that i'm not watching and then you were inspired to go and watch the whole show and then imagine you come upon this episode. Uh, sorry. You know, it really, it, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot there. There's, a, there's, there's so much to divine from these really absurd, extreme, you know, surreal scenarios that are painted on the show but just come loaded, sorry, with meaning, you know, that just come really, really that, that are just really, really rich in that way. I love that. And I, and I, this this just kind of really, you know, forget about Matt. We've talked a lot about Matt, so I'm not even really thinking about it from Matt's perspective. I, I find that view of the Fraserists to be pretty inspiring and, and pretty cool. And certainly not anything that I would choose to do with my life, but speaking a lot to, to my philosophy about how life should be lived. Being happy, doing what you do, doing what makes you happy. Don't hurt anybody. Just love yourself and love each other and love the people who love the things that you love. Yeah, it's hedonism. I mean, I think that, but not in like the most negative sense. Like it is the fascinating thing about this, right? Is the lioness, the the chief lioness, if you will. She confronts Matt about these very topics before they ever let him on the boat. She has no idea he's a man of God. Like she has no idea she he's probably a priest. Smell it on him, though. Oh yeah, you certainly can. Uh, that sacramental wine, like yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and the you incense. smell like wafers. Yes, you smell like wafers, incense, and sacramental. Like, yeah, no doubt. But, yeah, I, I, I still think that she has no idea, but she recognizes, like, even a non-man of God, even just a regular person, might struggle with what they're going to see here. And she tells him, like, pillar to post, like, port to port, there's going to be a lot of uh, fornication on this boat. And no questions asked. And their call is that the women have the rule of the roost and they can't be questioned, and I love all that. But that is the, that's the rules of the game that she lays out before she even knows that those rules might particularly be difficult for Matt. Uh, and I think that that's fascinating. And you're right. There is a duality of purpose there between those two characters, uh, people who might see Matt's. Look, Matt is many things, but he's not purely a moralist. Uh, he has lied. Uh, he lies in the context of this episode. We have the scene where he's not exactly telling the truth to our boy uh, Acevedo. Uh, I don't, unfortunately don't remember what his name is on this show, but uh, that is, he's not giving an honest accounting 
to what happens with the pilot. Like he's telling him, he's implying that it's a humanitarian mission or that there's part of this that he has to do it. He's not being fully honest with the guy about what's happening. And he's putting him in a very difficult position when the guy's mom seems to be on her deathbed. And it's like, you know, it's the home situation where it may be his home hospice or I don't know, but this is the scenario where he's basically saying like, yeah, your mom might die while we're gone. I mean, they give you 20K to make that better, but he's not really being forthright with this guy about what's happening and the importance of said mission. And he certainly is preying upon his faith. He's certainly preying upon the fact that he's a member of the congregation and using that for his purpose. So Matt is not a pure moralist. It's not a pure moralist who writes that letter about the guilty remnant. Uh, Matt has done many things which aren't purely moral. And yet here we are and we see him in an immoral situation. And it's not really that. I don't really think that that's the show doesn't get the mileage out of that. What they get the mileage out of is what we were just talking about, which with what you so eloquently summed up is the very sure, clear thing. As Shannon points out, what we get from the prayers, the very sure, clear context or voice that the Fraserites have versus Matt's confusion and seeking answers, even in this scene with God, quote unquote, uh, in this episode, Matt's confusion contrasted there. I think that's the contrast, not morals versus immorals. But being sure in your faith or your worship or your actions versus being unsure. And I think that's the fascinating contrast that we're going to see play out in these later episodes. I think we had a really good comment from our great friend Umberto about this uh, and about whether or not this is the show setting us up for something. Umberto says, I believe this episode is a preparation for the finale trying to make us more cynical. We have been shown many instances how, no matter how hard a faith is felt or how many people believe, there's always an explanation. Even Christianity, as David Burton points out, with Jesus having a twin. We as the audience now believe somehow that Kevin is special because of what we have seen. Is there a way, Josh, the finale can turn the quote-unquote twin explanation on us and show us there's actually another explanation to what happened to him and he's not special? Are we going to get the rug pulled out in that way, Josh? No, uh, maybe in terms of like you could read it in in a way where there's a twin explanation. There there could be, you know, images on screen. There could be plot developments that occur where you could read it in a way where you could you could find a grounded explanation for whatever it is we're going to see in the finale. But unless they really biff the landing, like I, I think that this, as you and I say all the time, like this show's sweet space, like the, the, the place where this show really lives is in that ambiguity and in that that arena where so many interpretations can happen. And I can't imagine the show balking from that. Um, what a disappointing ending it would be if there is like a one be-all, end-all, definitive answer to everything. That is so not the spirit of this show. Um, so I think that you, you there can certainly be something that happens that could lead you down a path of like, skepticism and and cynicism and i think that maybe what this show is also revealing is is that that can be okay too you know if if that's your temple you know even people of faith feel that way as we see with matt yeah if that's the place where you live and if you're if you're okay living there then you live there that's your cave that's your home that's your temple that can be fine but i live here now you live there now and i and i think that the the to to put you know, everybody in the same F boat, like would be a problem, you know, like to, to put everybody in that boat, that would be difficult. I think that the, that the leftovers wants to 
I'm so sorry, service a lot of masters. You know, I think that The Leftovers really wants to, wants to, I, I think it wants to land in a way where no matter how you're coming at it, you're going to walk away with your meaning satisfied. That is such a hard thing to satisfy. That is so difficult to pull off. And I don't know that the show can pull it off. Uh, but, but I think that that's what it's attempting. I think that that's always been what the show has been about. Is it's, been, it's been about you coming to terms with stuff. And how do you get there? And what does that mean for you individually? Uh, and I think that... Look at just the variety of feedback we've gotten on this show. You know, the, the, the various, you know, different viewpoints that we have been able to, to convey through your feedback, the people who are listening to these podcasts and writing in. Uh, you know, there are so many different ways to interpret the events of the show that have been proven to that have been displayed to us. And I, and I don't think that any one thing is going to be proven. I think that there will you know, probably be inclinations of like, hey, maybe, you know, open your mind and believe in a little bit of the spiritual because some of the international assassin hotel stuff is probably going to be hard to completely reject outright. So let the mystery be on that. Um, but I think in terms of any sort of, uh, you know, the, the David Burton had a twin brother of it all. Like, I don't think that anything like that is ever going to be, like, so cemented on the show. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And I think that that is uh, that really does play into all of these all of these discussions that we've had. Because, as you point out, uh, the, the let the mystery be angle and everything that plays into that, uh, that song is about how people interpret these divine events. And some people think you're coming back in the garden as carrots and sweet peas. And some say you're gone forever. And some say you'll never come back. Like there are these different interpretations and there is this happiness in letting the mystery be. We have not steered into that this season. And I think there's no coincidence that that song is gone, that that is no longer the mission statement of this show, that we are not letting the mystery be. We are seeing what happens when characters try to unfurl that mystery, when they try to solve it. When they try to look at the things that are lined up in front of them. And that's all very fascinating on a meta level, right? Because to say the L word, that is the lost experience. That there are people who are interpreting every little thing in the show as meaning something greater. There were people who were focusing on themes. There were people who were focusing on characters. There were people who were doing ultimately what your takeaway has been, and I think is a valuable one, which is appreciate the journey, not the destination. Like, just appreciate what you're doing. Like, look at what's happening around you. Not be so concerned about the exact path you're taking or where you're going to go. And I think that's the difficult needle that's being threaded here by this final season of The Leftovers because it isn't, it is lacking the, I think, the narrative thrust of season two. And I'm not talking about the F-boat, Josh, so don't even <laughs> snicker. It is lacking the narrative thrust of season two in that in season two where there was this great thing. Where did the girls go? Did they depart? Did they not? And we saw the various characters of the, of the, the dramatis personae, if you will, the characters of our show interpret that in different ways and that incident happening caused them to behave differently it caused some people to say miracle is not a miracle it caused people to say miracle is a miracle it caused other people to say they did depart they didn't depart all these things happening and we saw all that play out through that lens and we still told that story and there was this big narrative build this season is very much about just asking the questions. Not one big narrative story, but it's like there are characters that think Kevin is spiritual and there are characters that don't. There are characters that think the end of the world is coming. There are characters that don't. And we are now forced to ultimately 
look at that duality and find our place in it. Find our place. Are we Frazierites? Are we going to be happy with the journey? And we're just going to appreciate um, the pretty things and the things that speak to us and turn us on and make us feel good or, or, or elevate us or all those things in the episodes. Or are we going to start like looking past that and questioning and searching for meaning in everything? And I think that's fascinating. And I think that really does Speak to all the synchronicity we've talked about, right? All these things that are too odd. And we got we get a ton of feedback about that throughout. And it's not worth really hitting all of it. Patrick McNally sent a lot of really great examples of it. Does everything on the show cost 20000 You get to see your kids get a plane ride to Australia. Patrick also said, pick your dying mom or to, tie, or, or to fly on a plane to Australia. Pick to save a baby or to get a cure for cancer. And, like, there are these things that come up throughout. And we as viewers can choose to say... That means that there's going to be a twin and a twin's going to emerge in the final episode. And that's the narrative. It's going to mean something from a narrative standpoint. There is a science to this. Or we can just take the faith to it and say, no, there's a theme like this all resonates with me spiritually. Or there's a theme that's resonant, makes me feel a certain way. And that's what I'm going to focus on. And it is that duality that this show focuses on. And I think all of that fascinatingly plays into this. And it's really just what's going on. On here. And so when Umberto says, like, can the finale turn the twin explanation on us? I agree with you that I don't see the show leaning hard in on one aspect of this. But I do think that Humby is onto something when he points out or he is sort of by supposition saying, like, this show has a way of pulling back the curtain uh, on it, uh, on things and showing us that when we think there's spirituality in something, there actually, there actually could be science in it. And I think that the, 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 the show doing both of those things and setting us up to see things that way is something we need to keep in mind as we oh, look yeah. to future episodes. A million percent. That's, and that's what I'm saying if that wasn't clear. It's like... No, yeah. You're, you're, it's clear. I, I'm on the same page as you. Yeah, it's just you know multiple interpretations. We're never going to get like an answer. And, and that's baked into the premise and certainly baked into the PR, right? Yeah, you know? and it's baked into Kevin, right? Like Kevin thinks he's crazy, thinks he's not crazy. Is he spiritual? Is he not? Right. Uh, he's never going to get full clarity, I don't, I don't think. I mean, this isn't preacher, Josh. God's not going to show up on the show and start talking to people. That's like, not this show. And that's right. the, that, is the, that is the wisest thing uh, that could be done about this show. And I think that that has been what has made this show so special is because, for me at least, and maybe not for everybody, but for me, that really sets the expectations. You know, it, it really, you know, make of this what you will is kind of, you know, it's almost a choose your own adventure story in some ways. Like, you're, you know, certain things are going to happen to these people, but you get to pick why. You get to pick not how did it happen, who did it happen to, or when did it happen, but you do get to say why. And that's cool. That's really cool, and that's been a really, really great angle to the show. I just can't imagine it ever straying away from that because that's what made, that is what's made the show a success. Yeah, it's fascinating because there's one Lindelof show where the characters create their own story and they live in that world and that's the end, right? And in this show, the characters, I think, are lensing all of these incidents differently. And I think we're seeing the we're not we're not seeing a conjoined or combined view of the way these events 
uh, have meaning or the way these events should resonate. We're seeing very disparate views on this. We're seeing we had a great longer comment from Peter Politano where Peter ran through how Matt will leave his family and go to any extreme to prove that there is purpose and truth in his belief and that Kevin Sr. is willing to do these things. But Nora's laughing at these things and denying it and that Laurie is a woman of science and then she goes to the guilty remnant and she goes to others and Kevin himself is vacillating and there are all these people who are going to all these different lengths and it's fascinating we talked in an earlier podcast Josh we had the great feedback and I really apologize I can't remember who sent it in about how maybe the show left Erica behind because she actually found that piece she found that she found the way to continue to process these things and that's that and even though it's probably because they could could not only could only get Regina King for what they got I think that's a very fitting ending that that's a character in Erica who has the clarity who has resolved that we see John doesn't really have that so he's still struggling he thinks maybe Evie might still be alive but I love that this is a world where unlike Lost these characters are not all going to get on the same page about what these things mean and they're not going to get to a place where they're all happy I think that there's we're setting up a confrontation more than anything and I think that that's fascinating Antonio it's 45 minutes past midnight and we have both become Frasier (laughs) <laughs> yes. The thing is, I want to do two two or three quick hits and then end this thing. Frazier Frazier got to go to bed. <laughs> why would anyone not want to be Frazier? That looked like it was going to end okay for Matt. Am I wrong about that? I, I don't know what was going to happen in there. I, I don't want to say you're right or you're wrong because you do you, boo-boo, but that would have been not great for me. I would not have wanted to become Frazier. In I don't that know. Way. I don't, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. I feel like there could have been many willing participants in said ritual, and oh so God. it didn't seem like it would have been that terrible for me. The Book of we Revelations had, tonight. We we had a we had a great comment from anonymous. Anonymous writes: Sunday's episode left me grappling with one question and one question only. Is it not normal to shit four times a day? <laughs> Uh, or maybe that is maybe that's meant to show how normal Kevin is because that's happening. Yeah. I four times did seem interesting. That was an interesting line to draw. We, why is Laurie keeping track of that? By the you way, you know, to quote David Burton, Antonio, uh, I'm not judging. I've never been judging. <laughs> I'm not watching. I was never watching. <laughs> All right, and then one final thing, Josh. Not nearly as funny as that, but an interesting note to end on, considering where we're going. Because we begin this episode with a nuclear incident. It's mentioned as Matt is getting ready to go to Australia. We hear about it in the background. We don't have a ton of follow-up. Uh, Alina says, when I was listening to the news broadcast about the nuclear strike, I vaguely heard the newscaster mention the island in South Pacific, pa- South Pacific was volcanic and maybe uninhibited. What are the cha- uninhabited? I'm sorry, uninhibited was the boat. Yes. Uh, what are the chances? Do you think that a world-ending event will happen on the seventh anniversary? But it will be unclear if it's the end of the world or not. Perhaps the nuclear strike is triggering something volcanoes in that world or something like that. Umberto asked a similar thing. Is it that the end of the world is coming, or that the end of the world is chicken and egg, as Umberto put it, triggered by people's belief the end of the world is coming? Where do you think we come down in this episode, Josh, with the nuclear incident? Is that something that's going to lead to something bigger, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, it's still on the table. For me, like that's definitely still a possibility that we could be going towards. I think, um, you know, I I really like the idea that we talked about a lot earlier on in these podcasts of season three that 
we're looking in the Sarah Durst future as, uh, you know, we're looking at a world that is affected by a new religion that is stemming from these characters that we have been following. Like, I'm, I'm still not out on that. I'm still, in fact, very much in on that as a possibility. But there could be some sort of worldwide event. There could be a flood. There could be, you know, who knows what. And maybe this did trigger something. Um, you know, we o- we're always asking for our experts to weigh in. If there are any, like, geologists who could... <laughs> Who could could weigh in on, you know, or nuclear physicists on what this may have triggered. Or naked French people. Or naked French people would also be great. Uh, Nuclear incidents uh, four times a day. That's also irregular. Uh, But I I think that the one thing I would say is Sarah Durst as a concept, as as a future that has been established on the show, suggests that even if something cataclysmic happens, people will survive it. And so, once again, depends upon your definition, flexible definitions of stuff. Uh, you know, what does it mean for the world to end? And I think, actually, that's kind of the question of the leftovers. What does it mean for this podcast to end, Josh? It means it's done. We're done. It's over. There's no more meaning to it? There ain't no, no. more to it? No, oh no, my no. gosh. No, no, no. We still well, got a few. We still have a few. We have, uh, what, three more episodes of this beautiful, beautiful show to kind of just stumble our way through. What's uh, what's interesting, and I don't know if this will come up again, but one of the things I noted in my rewatch is when the guy sees Matt's nose bleeding in the bathroom and says, you got punched by God. The guy says, I've seen God smite many a man on this boat. And so I don't know if this is a thing David Burton does. I don't know if something bigger is going to come out of all this. He's I don't know a face something- puncher for sure. <laughs> he he seems to be the kind of guy that just minds his own business but i don't know why he got into the murder business that he got into but he definitely murdered somebody he murdered a dude no doubt yeah cold blood i don't know what's going to come of that i don't know where we're going to see more david burton or if we're not i just think it's fascinating that we could be facing down an end of the world we could be facing down an end of a kevin we could be facing down an end of a matt we could be facing down the end of multiple relationships uh and we could be seeing more david burton or not and we just don't really know and we're in a position where, like the characters on the show, we're questioning the things that have presented, been presented to us. We're trying to assign some value to them. We're having values assigned and then changed based on new information that we learn. It is a very meta show in a way that I'm not 100% sure we all really talk about enough. But the whole experience of participating in these things is very, very, very much relevant and and prevalent in the way that i'm looking at uh these episodes because i feel like one of these characters at this point josh patrick mcnally also wrote in was quote unquote vigorous uh hand job guy pleasuring himself or someone else and didn't vigorous hand job guy have like a viral tweet this past week he did didn't he i think he tweeted something like well mom i finally made it or something to that effect right didn't he yeah, he's like, well, Mom, I finally made it on American television. Oh, wait. And then it was just like a screenshot of the credits that uh, he would not like to show his mother. So I thought, yeah. that that, I thought that was very funny. Sadly, I don't remember Vigorous Handjob Guy's true name. Uh, it's David something, I think. But Burton. listen, David Burton. I rewatched Looking for, for, v, for VHG, and I did not see VHG. So I'm about to rewatch again. Uh, if somebody wants to uh, screenshot and or timestamp VHG for me, I, wanna, I want to believe. You're willing did, to go there. 
I'm willing to go there. I want to believe they didn't just play a cruel joke on this guy by putting his name in the credits that way. And yet the way he was featured made me feel like he should have been more prevalent than he was when I rewatched it. So I really don't know. Maybe that's who was murdered. Maybe that's the crime that David Burton uh, was rectifying with his <laughs> godlike justice. I was always told by my nuns and my family that God is watching and God doesn't like it when you do that. <laughs> So perhaps that is ultimately the divine justice uh, that was struck there. You asked earlier how to end a podcast. I think you just arrived at the answer, Antonio. Are we uh, hashtagging F-Boat on this one, Josh? Sure. Let's go with that. Hashtag F-Boat is good by me. Uh, you could tweet that our way. I'm at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. Get your feedback in for us for future shows. Uh, leftovers at postshowrecaps.com is our email address. Postshowrecaps.com slash feedback is our feedback form. Uh, we usually record our quick reactions on Sunday nights after the episode. Apologies in advance. We are going to have to do that a little tiny bit later this week than usual. We are going to have our reaction to the upcoming episode on Monday is when we are going to be recording on the earlier side. So hopefully it will be in your, however you're listening to podcasts, in your iPhones, your devices, your everything. Hopefully by the end of day on Monday, just a little bit later than usual. And then of course we will also have our feedback show next week. Uh, Anything else, Antonio, before before we sign out here. No, shout out as always to the great Alex Kidwell for all his help collating the feedback, editing, and producing these podcasts. As always, very much appreciated. He is our God, Josh. He is. It's a little questionable that we would worship such a man, but here we are. Nah, he's a great man. He's a great man. Thank you, as always, Alex Kidwell. And thank all of you guys for awesome feedback this week. This is a really fun show, and you guys had a lot of really, really thoughtful takes on not just this episode, but the leftovers overall. Uh, Had a really fun time talking it through with you, Antonio. Thank you. I had the same, Josh. It was a uh, we we dug deep. We dug coal together. We we, we, pod, we dug podcasts together. So here we, we are. Here we are. Here we are. And here we go. We will be back on Monday, not Sunday, talking about the next episode of the Leftovers. Only three more to go, Antonio, and then we have to uh, we have to say goodnight to this beautiful show. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about that either. I'm, I'm not, at the, not at the acceptance stage quite yet. All right, we will be back soon with another episode of our Leftovers podcast. Take care, everybody. Goodbye.
Jesus.